Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is God's word. Thanks, uh, Augustina, for reading scripture for us. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ is born. Let us rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Blessed Christmas, everyone. I'd like us to picture yourself with a huge festive procession. Crowds on your left and on your right, and people are singing, people are dancing, people are beating tambourines, and uh, those of us who are a bit more reserved, you might even feel a bit out of place uh, because of the sheer happiness all around you. But slowly you start to let down your guard. As it starts to dawn on you, everybody around you is singing for joy, believing that they really have good reasons for joy. No, you're not in Buenos Aires celebrating the World Cup victory. You're not at Tanglin Mall, where the snow display is and the pretty lights are, and the kids, you can bargain with your parents. I think it's still going on. Uh, the occasion is not Christmas. It's Sukkot, Israel's annual harvest festival. And we may recognize it by another name, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And the highlight of that celebration was joyful worship in the Jerusalem temple, huge thanksgiving processions with loud praise to God. And all Israel was called to join in that worship. We can read about this in Exodus 23. And no one, absolutely no one, worshipped from home. There was no private worship. Such a thing would have been unthinkable. Joy is always expressed in the gathering. It cannot be expressed alone. So imagine the booths or the tents that are set up in the yards of Jerusalem households. I've given you a picture here of a modern version of that. And uh, families used olive branches for tent poles. And on top of that, they put blue and gold cloth, or in this case, uh, wood, I think, on top. And they would decorate these tents with beautiful uh, flowers and fruits. Like some of us decorate a tree at Christmas. Sukkot was an annual reminder that God had saved the people out of darkness for joy. And he himself led them through the wilderness as they lived in those tents. And he never stopped providing for his people. So every family would gather outdoors in their tents for dinner. And they would look up and they would see God's starry night sky. And over their meal of olives and figs and dates and wheat, which God provided, they would give thanks to God, from whom all blessings flow. 
You know, our passage from Psalm 100 was likely used both in the temple and in homes at Sukkot because this passage is such a natural expression of joy. The doxology of praise, which we just sang, which is sung by churches all over the world, also has roots in our Psalm 100. It is the only psalm with this unique ascription. You can see it under the title, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. So if you're a visitor to GBC, excuse me, if you're a visitor to GBC today, or you're not a Christian, thank you so much for coming. You are very cool and very open-minded to be with us. Welcome. And uh, we also want to welcome all the children who are here with us today. You know, it, it's, it may be surprising to know that God has actually given us specific instructions for how and why to give thanks. This is a reminder that human beings, we, we have a problem with humble thanks. We don't find it easy. We don't find it natural to say that we depend on God. We prefer to stand on our own two feet, some of us with bad posture, but we stand on our own two feet. We take pride in what we do. But Christians are called to be a thankful people, not because it's good manners, not because of the psychological benefits, but because we know that God in His nature is good. The old theologians tell us that God's goodness is how He has dealt bountifully with us. God has been good to us. So as a church, we've been studying through Psalms 96 to 100 in this Advent season. And our call in all of these passages is not to rejoice in festive holidays or lighter email inboxes, but in God and in His coming King. This, this Christmas morning, we find ourselves at the climax of Psalm 100, which points us to joy in God. And my prayer is that in this time, we'd be encouraged, that we'd be edified as we rejoice in Him through His Word. Let's pray together. Father, in these moments, cause Your Word to be proclaimed in power and received by faith. And exalt and magnify the name of Jesus here. We pray this in His name. Amen. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this big idea down. And kids, you're here with us. You can tell your parents what you learned today later. This is the big idea. We rejoice because God has made Himself known, invited us in, and will keep every promise in Christ. Our text is quite brief. It's just five verses long, and it's focused on one main call to action, or the what of the psalm, right? Give thanks. That's the what. And that one action is fleshed out seven different ways. The verb phrases I've extracted and put them on the slide, and they are also in your ministry guide. Well, taken together, they tell us how to do the what, how to offer joyful thanks. So let's speak first on this, and then we'll look together at three whys, the reasons for our joy. How do we give thanks? Well, notice with me that Christian thanksgiving requires sincerity. We must be sincere. The psalmist 
here calls us to really experience joy and gladness, verses 1 and 2. We are not to perform just our outward religious duties. This means you can't just be here faking it till you're making it. When it comes to joy, man looks outward at what we do, but God looks at the heart. Our God is interested in our hearts. He's looking at it right now. As you're seated here in this holy hour of worship, what's going through your mind? What's going through your heart? Are you engaged sincerely with Him? Are you aware that you're in His presence right now? Offer our hearts in sincerity. Thanksgiving calls for expressed joy. Expressed joy. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise, serve God, bless His name. These are verb phrases that we we do. They're not silent actions. So verse 2b explicitly says, sing in praise. That's one of 50, 50 direct commands in the Bible to sing out loud. Uh, Friends, silent singing, not an option. But some of a, but an objector may ask, so isn't it vain that God command us to gather and sing out loud His praise? Isn't it vain of God to ask? Well, one writer responds this way, quote, All true enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Praise of weather, wines, countries, children, flowers. The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about, unquote. When we praise and sing about our delight, we're doing the most natural thing in the world. In contrast, to not express praise is to be so unimpressed by God to say, this object is not deserving of my expressed delight. What we rejoice in, we praise. So what is that? Christian thanksgiving is God-centered. Our joy and gladness is found in Him. We bless His name and thank Him, verse 4. Now contrast this against the world's confusion on the topic of thanksgiving. I read an op-ed by a very famous astrophysicist and he was pondering the cosmos and the photos from the Hubble telescope. And he wrote, he was suddenly overcome with a deep and profound sense of gratitude to no one. And then I was at a meeting another time where after a long meeting, the chairman asked us all around the room, he said, thank yourselves for what you've done. What does it say about us if our greatest expression of humility when we are humbled or when we celebrate and we are joyful and we direct those emotions at no one or worse, ourselves? I hope you would agree that if anything else, Christian thanksgiving is not without target. It must be directed at the God who is really there, who is really outside of us, really separate from us. 
finally, Christian thanksgiving is informed. So it's sincere, expressed joy, God-centered, and informed. Informed meaning we know the exact reasons why we are happy. We get these reasons from the Bible as we pay attention to the Bible. Biblical content is like fuel without which a flame cannot burn. But when it does, we get the warmth of our affections rising to God and we get the light of truth. So in, in this church, in our sermons here, we, we never want to hear just an opinion. No, we always want to hear Bible content. And kids, I hope that you look for that too in your Sunday school. Look for Bible content. And, and I hope you also believe me that the truth of the Bible about God is the most important information that we will ever need or that our hearts will ever require. Be hungry about learning about the God of the Bible. Be hungry for that information. Kids, ask your parents to talk to you about their God. Ask your parents what they're learning about God. And ask them to share with you what they're learning about their God. Ask your grandparents, your uncles and aunties. In fact, at the heart of Psalm 100, we see that request, isn't it? In verse 3, and we'll come back to that. The, this idea of being informed is really, uh, in some ways, at the, at the heart of the structure of Psalm 100. Twice, the psalmist will instruct us and tell us what to do, and then he will inform us about why. He'll instruct us and tell us what to do, and then he'll tell us why. So we see that in verses 1, instruction, and then verse 3, information, and then repeat again, verse 4, instruction, verse 5, information. When we are rightly informed about God, we will rightly give thanks to Him. So that's the how of Psalm 100. Sincerely expressing joy in God based on true information. Another way of saying this is that we rejoice in God and what He has done for us. So what are these reasons? All right, Caleb, give us information. So with the rest of our time, uh, I'd like to offer three reasons for rejoicing from our text. Reason number one, God has made himself known, verses one to three. In, in one sense, every time we open this book, God is revealing himself to us. This uh, Advent season, God has been revealing to himself to us from the Psalms as we learn of his holiness, his righteousness, his glory, his power. So when verses one and two call for joyful delight in God, we're actually getting repeated instructions that we read about in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. The exact phrases are used. In the 1940s, C.S. Lewis, a literature, of, a literature professor of both Oxford and Cambridge, mediocre schools, presented a series of lectures on the radio explaining Christianity to secular Britons. And they were so popular, they were turned into a little book called Mere Christianity. And in it, in it Lewis said, quote, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him, unquote. So verse 3, 
is a great example of that initiative. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Look at God's self-revelation. I love how each line of verse 3 becomes more personal and more tender as you go. He is divine God. He is creator. We are His creatures. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And we are together, the sheep dwelling on His land. You know, this time of the year can actually be uh, very painful for some of us. For folks who are bereaved, for folks who are mourning loved ones, or just feeling out of place, not in the festive mood. Know this from God's Word. You belong to God, your Maker. You are His. He has claimed us. He has pasture for us, food for our souls, and protection. He's the shepherd of His flock. Well, someone skeptical may ask, can we really know this? Is it really possible to know God, or even to know that God exists? Well, let's think of it this way, with an illustration that I've stolen uh, about Shakespeare and Hamlet, one of the characters in his plays. Well, how would Hamlet, in the play, know if his maker, the playwright, really existed? They live on different planes, right? But what evidence would be necessary for Hamlet to know that Shakespeare really existed? Answer, it would depend not on Hamlet's initiative or his own ability to interpret his world, but on Shakespeare's. Only if the playwright writes himself into the play, only if the playwright includes himself in a knowable way, can Hamlet know that there is a creator and that he is one of his creatures? Friends, Jesus Christ is God writing himself into the play. The Apostle John states in John 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The birth of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is God revealing Himself to us. And back in our text, did you notice the scale of who the psalmist thinks should know this God in joy? You see it in verse 1. All the earth is called to know God. It's not just Israel, not just the people that celebrate Sukkot. No, all humanity, all the nations must know their Maker so from the Bible's first book, Genesis, we learn that God has placed His own image on human beings. So all of us carry the dignity of being image bearers of God. Made in God's image, humanity reflects the worth, wisdom, power, and glory of God Himself. Indeed, what can be known about God is plain to us. But our story has gone dark when we turned against our Maker and rejected Him, we tarnished that glorious image in us. When we refused to rejoice in the One who made us and refused to serve Him, we serve only ourselves 
And in fact, we prefer that other people made in God's image serve us. The Bible says we are sinners, rebels against God. One time I was giving a, a, a talk to some young people and I tried an object lesson. Sometimes you try these things, they, they go horribly. This one turned out okay. I, I told one young man, okay, you're going to be the sun and the rest of the group, you're going to orbit around the sun. So everybody did that and everybody circled him in perfect order. That was joy and happiness in the room. Then I said, okay, so let's pause. Uh, now everybody, please be your own sun. Make everybody else orbit around you. So they look quite confused. How do you do that? How does one make other human beings orbit around you? So then they started grabbing one another, swinging each other. And the ones that were compliant, after a while, introverts. Okay, okay, swing. And the stronger ones had the power. And then they started to collide, and it was not funny. And my illustration uh, fell apart. But, you know, that's just a true picture of our world. It's just a true picture of our sin-soaked world. As you look at it, and as you think about the headlines of the newspapers that you read this morning, do these words from the hymn writer give you clarity about the world? But with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song that they bring. Oh, hush the noise. Men of strife, hear the angels sing. If we are honest about our sin, we are men of strife, are we not? And true peace on earth with God and with one another can never be brought about by our effort. We are like people who dwell in great darkness. But listen to this. On us, light has shone. God's true light has come into the world. John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of the world was born for hope. You know, the practice of lighting Christmas trees can be traced back to the 15th century to when the German pastor Martin Luther first came up with the brilliant idea to put a candle in the tree. I know, fire safety, right? But he, he thought that the darkness of the tree, especially at night, reminded him so much of the night sky against which the bright star that pointed to Jesus shone with great light. So he looked at that tree and he thought, these are stars. And friends, so all the lights of Christmas should preach the gospel to us. The light of the world shone in his birth, in his life, in his ministry, until at the cross, that light was cruelly snuffed out where we should have been snuffed out. For his sheep, the good shepherd lays down his life. But he did not stay dead in that grave. What happened to the Prince of Peace? the bright sun of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing 
in his wings. But because of Jesus, we can know God. We can have peace with him. This is the first reason for our joy. God has made himself known in Jesus. The second reason for our joy, God invites us in. Verse 4 of our passage reads, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And at first, one might be puzzled by the mention of these gates and courts. So uh, I was thinking about this uh, in Korea when I was on holiday where the weather is so cold. Uh, and we visited the royal Gyeongbokgong Palace. Uh, the Chinese characters are Jingfugong, or Palace of a Blessed View. Great name. Uh, this palace has walls within walls within walls and gates within gates within gates. We walked it and we walked it and we just kept walking and we felt like we would never end. And maybe you've been there. And this is the, the idea that, I, that just clocked in my, uh, clicked in my mind, not clocked, clicked in my mind, that the exalted sovereign at the center of this royal space is not commonly or casually accessed. He's just not. So the psalmist obviously wasn't thinking about Korea, but the structure of the Jerusalem temple built by King Solomon according to God's own design. It's a similar logic. The design teaches us that more than any Korean ruler, God the king is alone holy. And we have a, have a holiness problem as we try to get into his presence. Sinful man cannot stand before that holy presence. So the outermost court of the temple was the closest any one of us, unless you're Jewish, closest one of us could go, non-Jews, Gentiles who are alienated from God and the commonwealth of Israel. And the sacrificial animals were sold here and Jesus cleansed the temple out here in this outermost ring. And through the next gate was the court of women where festive lamps were hung during Sukkot. Into the next space, only men could go, into the court of Israel. And there was a non-priestly area, and then a priestly area where all the sacrifices were performed. Then the inner area of the holy place. And then once a year, the high priest alone enters the ultimate center, the holy of holies. So the architecture begs this question. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But you know, Psalm 100 sounds like it's from a completely different planet. We hear the invitation. Come into his presence, verse 2. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, verse 4. And we don't know how, we don't know how God has done this, but he has somehow overcome the holiness problem. As we read the rest of the Bible, the solution is revealed. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And commenting on verse 4 of our text, one scholar says, The simplicity of the invitation of Psalm 100 may conceal the wonder of it, for the courts are truly his, not ours, and his gates are shut to the unclean. Yet, not only God's outer courts, 
But the holy of holies are thrown open by the new and living way, and we are welcome. Friends, this Christmas morning, we know the whole story. Jesus Christ welcomes us all to come into his presence. Shepherds in the field were considered unclean in the temple. Magi from the east, Gentiles, probably astronomers, idol-worshipping foreigners, they could have never accessed these temple courts. But they are among the first to adore the Christ child. And with the shepherds and the magi, we are all invited in by God to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. If you're an on-and-off visitor to church, I'm so glad you're here. We warmly welcome you in Jesus' name. I hope you let us get to know you. I hope you let us meet you after this service. This invitation, though, is so much more than just coming to church, hanging out with a bunch of nice people. Oh, come in through Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to all the children in the room, listen, this invitation is also for you. Kids, we love and we pray for you. We pray that you will come to know Jesus as your Savior. Kids, if this is something at some point you want to do, you can just humbly repent of your sins, turn away from them, and trust Jesus by faith to save you, and then tell your parents what you want to do. Brothers and sisters of GBC, as a church, we must never tire of this truth, that holy access through Jesus is a gift of grace, and we must bring this news to our neighbors and to the nations? Is there someone that God has put on your heart that you need to speak to about Jesus this Christmas? Or parents, perhaps you might want to talk to your kids about what they've just heard. Only Jesus can be their joy. And you know, there's also a danger that all of us respond hypocritically to this invitation. And so we would do well to heed the cautionary tale of King Herod from Matthew 2. He was the one who told the Magi to search diligently for the child that I may come and worship him. You know, Herod was so close, he was so close to actually entering in, to gaining access to the Christ child. But his true motives were to preserve his own reign as Lord of his life. So his, his faith was a pretense, his worship was false, and tragically he missed out on the very source of eternal joy and the greater security than being an earthly king. Now, to Jesus Christ, we must come in humble adoration, never, never with smug arm folding or self-deceived hypocrisy. If, if we don't come in with sincerity and faith, our thoughts and our hearts will just be like Herod's every Lord's Day when we come. Well, some of you know that I love singing. And God has just, you know, He's designed something about singing that connects our minds, our hearts, and our body. It's just, it just connects when we sing. And the last few weeks, we've seen some of the best examples of singing uh, on television. As people rejoice in their country, they rejoice in their football teams, a whole stadium of people singing 
is, you know, it really gives you goosebumps. Our singing here must be no less grand than in these stadiums. This room is my favorite place to sing. And every week when we come to church, we must come in sincerity to sing about and sing to the Lord. We have entered in through Jesus to rejoice in Him. So I have a two-step suggestion, two-step suggestion for how to make GBC singing really great. Our singing would be great if everybody took a deeper breath and actively remembered the greatness of who we sing about. You want to be a great singer? Find something great to sing about. Do we want to be a great singing congregation? Let the greatness of God fill your mind, fill your heart, and then take a deep breath and sing. Our singing is poor when we are physically and spiritually disengaged, when we are detached from what we are singing about. Breathe deeply and open your mind, your heart to God. Stop fussing about the things that you're fussing about. Focus for a minute on the greatness of God and you'll find joy bubbling up as we think about God's holiness, His love for us, His goodness to us, and we should not fear joyful emotions, and as many of you know, we should not fear tears. We should not fear the lifting of holy hands in praise as we offer Him the sacrifice of praise. Humble worship increases our joy. It erodes hypocrisy. Lewis again, the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. So God has made himself known. He has invited us in. Reason three for joy. He keeps all his promises. Verse five. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The name of the Lord in superscript or L-O-R-D, all caps, is the personal name of God revealed in Exodus 6. He is the holy, uncreated one. He makes a promise to bless and to save. And we see this phrase, the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord. Here's a Bible reading tip. Whenever that phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, appears, we are, it's always, always, always talking about God's intention to keep His covenant the writer stresses God's commitment to do good to Abraham's children by faith. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. This is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. So when young Mary hears that God's spirit will help her conceive in power, though she was a virgin, she didn't say, wow, what a, what a medical miracle. What an unlikely conception. That's not what she says. Instead, she bursts into this song and she says, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers 
to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Luke 1, 54 to 55. Mary believes God's covenant to Abraham was being worked out in her life. And in obedience, she then took risks for God. The mothers in our midst will appreciate her labor of faith. Let it be to me according to your word was a nine-month commitment to trust God. And then after 33 years, that mother's heart would be broken. Is your faith this morning like Mary's? Do we simply take God at His word, this one who speaks in steadfast love and faithfulness? You know, trusting an extraordinary God to be true to His word is what makes ordinary Christians extraordinary. It can be the power that makes us bold to obey, even what God has asked us to do, uh, if, even if it's difficult or uncomfortable. He may, has not, he may have not asked us to bear a virgin birth, but what has God asked of us? Well, we are to repent of our sins, to be baptized into His body, to share His gospel, to love our enemies and to pray for them, to forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us, and more and more. Will we be bold in our obedience? Or would we exercise perseverance and patience as we wait for God to keep His promises? In that day, there were those in Israel like Simeon and Anna who waited many years to look upon Messiah. Taking God at His word makes us both bold and patient in faith. And God's faithfulness may also surprise us. Our elders have been preaching here about the promises of the Lord's first coming. All creation will sing for joy when He comes. He will return as triumphant King and Judge. Over all the nations, He will execute justice in holiness. Psalm 96 to 99. But nobody reading those Psalms, nobody would have expected those earth-shattering promises to be fulfilled as they were. That the cosmic God, the glorious God, would also be the incarnate God, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and have an umbilical cord. Truly God and truly man would have been unexpected. But God keeps all His promises. Bible scholars have tallied about 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And in the specifics of His birth, there are about a dozen Recall how the, Magi brings, bring, how the Magi bring kingly gifts of gold because he will be the promised Davidic son. They offer frankincense because he will be God's high priest. And they read Isaiah 53, most likely, so they knew that God's servant would suffer for sin, so they brought myrrh. Why else would wise men bring perfume of death to a baby shower? Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus' death would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And friends, God has still more promises to keep in Jesus. He will come again with a crown for all who have loved 
and longed for His appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8 He will usher in the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3 verse 13 I hope this encourages us, especially if we've grown weary in waiting for the Lord. And as this year ends, maybe we've been bruised or broken by sin. Maybe we've been discouraged and and become cynical about God's promises. Romans 8 says, We groan with creation like a mother in the pains of childbirth. But this wait will soon end. As sure as He arrived the first time, the Lord will come again. He is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient. That's what verse 5 of our text talks about the faithfulness and patience of God to keep those promises and be good to us. So we can, with Mary and Anna and Simeon and this psalmist, wait on the Lord who is good and has steadfast love and faithfulness. Our non-Christian friends, please hear me. This Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And the secrets of all our hearts will be revealed. Everything we've done, that we've said, or we've thought will be called into account before Him. But He is merciful. Where meek souls receive Him still, the dear Christ will enter in. Some in this room have been coming to church for years. And we've heard many, many times this good news. You've probably heard it from better preachers you've never made a decision of faith because you tell yourself, I still have time. I still have time. Friend, I'm here to say, please don't delay anymore. That life of living for yourself is not better than living for Jesus. It's not better than knowing Him. Let today be the day that you humble yourself, that you make yourself meek before Jesus not out of fear of Him, but for joy. Hear these words of one who came to Jesus and was surprised by joy. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. If you put your faith in Jesus today, there is joy in sins forgiven and conscience cleansed, reconciled to God and to know peace with Him. I'd love to speak to you after this service, right here in the front, if, you, if you've made this decision. Please don't be shy. Come forward. Don't be, don't, be, don't be worried. Nothing weird will happen. We can just speak and talk about anything or any questions you may have. Let me conclude. You know, I was really unprepared uh, as we watched the World Cup overlapping with Advent uh, to see all the, the, the players from uh, different countries, especially France, as, never mind, let's talk, talk about France. As they came on, they crossed themselves, they point to heaven, they pray on the side of the pitch, or they flash their faith tattoos. And, and yes, you know, some of them have uh, scripture on them. Somebody had Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Somebody else has a crucified, I mean, a, a Christ with a crown of thorns. And of course, we can't see into their hearts. We don't know the true state of everyone's heart. 
But you know, as I, as, I, as I saw all of those little signs, I was reminded that, you know, when we come to Christ, we are not alone. We, we are part of a much bigger and broader and happier crowd than we realize of people who have been made glad in Christ. We have tasted the wonders of His love. God's heaven is a world of love. And as His church on earth, we are the foretaste of that joy. And we gather to feast on that joy, and then we scatter to spread that joy to the world. So in a few months, when we go downstairs to the fellowship hall, not to celebrate Sukkot, not to eat olives or dates or to dance, you can dance if you want, but we have a Christmas meal for us to enjoy. And I pray that the joy of the gospel will be on your hearts and minds. I pray that we'll open our hearts to one another, that we'll fellowship in the name of Jesus, bring to each other Christmas greetings. So don't dash off. Welcome one another and our visitors as we rejoice together in God. Well, brothers and sisters, we have all the reason in the world to rejoice. God has made himself known to us. He has invited us in. And he's going to keep all of his good promises, including this one from John 5. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let us rejoice exceedingly with great joy, for Christ is born. Alleluia.